Well, welcome back to our study of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. We are getting near the end, but the book of Revelation gets more exciting as you go. So we have three sessions left and we are three chapters from the end, but uh, the, we're really finally getting to the exciting part of this book. I shouldn't say finally, it's all been exciting, but this is more exciting, okay? Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful that we have the ability to gather and we do pray for the leaders of our nation and the leaders of our world. Father, we know that all of these events move to your will despite what it seems sometimes, but I pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders toward you, that we might be a beacon of peace and justice in the world. And I pray, Father, that you would give us faith to trust you in every circumstance. I do lift up the cares of this group, that uh, anxieties, grief, healings. Lord, we lift up our, our problems and our difficulties to you, and I pray for your peace. We also lift up our praise for the many, many blessings you showered on us. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's our number for questions. If you want to text those during class, uh, whether you're online or here, uh, just text your questions in. We'll answer as many as we can. Sometimes questions, uh, we want to go a lot deeper and build more context around them. So every Friday at SoWeSpeak.com, there's a podcast where we dive into some of these questions a little bit more deeply. So let's recap where we are. If you remember the basic structure of the book of Revelation, this, is just a, this hopefully helps frame it up for you. Chapters one through three were introduction to this revelation uh, from Jesus Christ to John, who's on the island of Patmos. He's imprisoned, he's on a penal colony, basically, for preaching the gospel. And so he gets this vision from an angel sent by Jesus to tell him the things that are gonna happen. So chapters one through three are letters dictated by Jesus. There, if you look at chapters one through three, there's all these red letters. I mean, it's Jesus speaking to seven churches. Some people think it's seven literal churches, probably true. Some think it's seven ages of the church throughout all of history, maybe true. Some think that it's uh, seven different kinds of churches that exist today and every time may very well be true. And certainly though, there are lessons to be learned for all Christians of all times from hearing what Jesus had to say. So you get letters to the churches. Then chapters four through chapter 19 are what are known as the tribulation. What is the tribulation? The tribulation is basically a set of God judging evil in the world. It's, it's the time of God judging the gods of this world and the evil powers of this world from all time. How do Christians understand the tribulation? Well, the key question is, when will those things happen? Well, some Christians have thought that all those events, the seven seals being opened, the seven trumpets being blown, the seven bowls being poured out, in other words, all these cataclysmic events happening, that those were all talking about the destruction of Jerusalem back in 70 AD. By the way, I'm painting with a broad brush. The preterist view has many nuances, and I'm not going into that. I just want to give you the basic idea that those things happened in the past. Well, but some Christians, particularly those, the reformers in, say, the 1500s, uh, John Wesley and 
Calvin and uh, Arminius and Zwingli and those, you know, the Protestant movement, particularly in that area, they said, wait a minute, I think all those cataclysms and all that tribulation is a whole map of the whole church age from the first appearance of Christ and the resurrection till the second coming. Still others said no, they were futurists. They said chapters four through 19 haven't happened yet. They're gonna happen in a seven year period in the future. So they're called futurists. And then finally, there's a symbolic school of thought that says, wait a minute, maybe these, because you know, seven seals, and seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath, and seven judgments three times over, well, it sure sounds very symbolic. Maybe it's telling you something that came true many times in history. So that's the, basically chapters four through 19 are the tribulation, and the big division amongst Christians is, well, when did that happen, or when will it happen? We get to chapter 19 and you end up with the battle of Armageddon. So the tribulation ends with the second coming of Jesus and destroys the armies of the earth that the Antichrist has set up. And it says, I saw the Antichrist, this is the very end of chapter 19, and the kings of the earth with all their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And I didn't show you this part, but Jesus is coming from heaven with the heavenly army. And what happens is the beast was captured, the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet. Uh, and these two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Think hell. And the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth, the word of God, the truth of the gospel, who was sitting on the horse. And so you see the end of the tribulation is the coming of Christ and the destruction of the enemies of Christ. Okay, so then as chapter 20 opens up, chapter 20 is, in my view, undoubtedly the most hotly debated chapter in the Bible. Uh, maybe Genesis 1, but certainly in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 20 has had more debates for 2,000 years. And so my goal is to take the millennium, which we're just, we're gonna read the first 10 verses together, then we're gonna break it down and talk about what in the world is this talking about and how have Christians understood it. So we're done with the tribulation, okay? And we're gonna move into what happens after the tribulation. So let's begin by reading chapter 20, first 10 verses, and see what happens next. Then, chapter 20 opens, then I saw, this is another vision that John is happening. So the book of Revelation is a series of visions. You'll see that phrase, then I saw, many times. He said, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, that word bottomless pit is abyss. And so uh, what is an abyss? Uh, we use that word to talk about, say you're standing on the edge of a volcano uh, and you look down and you literally cannot see the bottom of it. And so it's a pit that if you were in there, you couldn't get out, you couldn't climb out, you don't even know how deep it is. It's, we would just call that an abyss. Uh, a bottomless pit. Obviously, it has a bottom, but you know the idea of a bottomless pit you can't get out, and so that's what an abyss is. And so he sees this uh, angel, and he has the key to the bottomless pit, as though it were a prison, 
as though it were a place you had put someone and they couldn't get out of the bottomless pit. He sees the dragon. Who's the dragon? That ancient serpent. What is that referring to? Garden of Eden. Who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and sealed it so that Satan could not get out of the abyss. So Satan is imprisoned or bound at this point for 1,000 years. And the Latin word for 1,000 years is millennium. And so you're gonna, I'm gonna use the word 1,000 years and millennium interchangeably, but that the Latin word for 1,000 years is millennium. He said, so bound him for 1,000 years, threw him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over so he might not deceive the nations any longer. Because what does Satan do? Satan is the deceiver. He's the accuser. He's the liar. So he couldn't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must, this is an interesting little word here, why must he be released for a little while? And so the idea is, it's not a matter of he escapes from prison, but there's something in the plan of God that he is going to be released at the end of the thousand years. Well, let's go on. Then I saw thrones. So Satan's in the pit. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, this would have meant a lot to first, uh, second century Christians because the primary method of killing Christians then was just cutting their heads off. Okay, you're accused, you aren't gonna worship the gods, you're a Christian, zoop off with your head. And so those who had not worshiped the beast or its image, the Antichrist, and had not received the mark of the beast on their hands or their forehead. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about people who were Christians, believers, during the tribulation. However long and whenever you think that happened, right? Because we got four views of when, when the tribulation happened. But basically, those who were Christians, who were persecuted, who were killed during the tribulation, they come to life and reigned with Christ. So you're talking about reigning with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So this is called the thousand year reign of Christ. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, meaning you've been faithful even to the point of death and Christ has raised you up to rule with him. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So. You've got Satan being bound. You've got Christ ruling for a thousand years with the saints. And when I say saints, I mean the holy ones. I mean Christians with those who were faithful, even to the point of death during the tribulation. They come alive and they reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, from the abyss, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So basically Satan comes out, goes out into the world, deceives the rulers, says you guys need to come fight against God, you need to serve me. So he goes and deceives the rulers of the whole world. 
That's the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which is a reference to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, believers in Christ, and the beloved city, most would say Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, Satan, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the Antichrist and the false prophet were, and they would be tormented day and night forever. Okay, so that, that 10 verses is the millennium. That word, thousand year reign millennium, occurs six times in the entire New Testament, and they're all here. So what that says is you don't have a lot of, when it comes to interpreting what does it mean, you don't have a lot of things to go grab and say, well, over here it says this and over there it says that. Because that idea only appears here in the New Testament. But it's a big deal. So how have Christians understood what is the millennium? And I know it's gonna sound a little funny, but the way Christians have divided over this is by answering a question. You remember the difference of opinion over the tribulation was when did it happen or when will it happen, right? This, the big question is, does Jesus come before or after the thousand year reign? That sounds odd, doesn't it? So, but that's how this, this thing divides up. So let's talk about the millennial views. What do I mean by that? The millennial views are how have Christians, how do you understand when and what is this thousand year reign of Christ and does it happen before? Does Christ come back for, the, for his second coming before or after? So first view is called pre-millennialism. Pre meaning before. Christ will return before the thousand year reign. He will fight the battle of Armageddon. He will reign on earth for 1,000 years. He will defeat Satan's final rebellion when he's let out of jail. And then final judgment happens, which will be next lesson. And then the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So premillennialists take the book of Revelation in a chronologically linear way, right? Tribulation happens. Chapters four through 19, Jesus comes back in chapter 19. We do the battle of Armageddon. Then we have the thousand years. Then Satan is let out. And then you have judgment. And then you have new heaven and new earth. So premillennialists say, well, if you just read this and these things happen in the order that they're written down. You see what I'm saying? What if chapter 19 happens before chapter 20, and that happens before chapter 21. If that's the case, then this is the way it works. Jesus comes back before the millennial reign. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, duh, that makes so much sense. That's why most people in the West are premillennialists, right? Because you can look at the text and take it in a chronologically literal way. But you can be a post-millennialist. Post meaning after. Jesus' second coming is after the thousand years reign. It says we currently live in a time of the spread of the gospel. 
And if we go do what Jesus told us to do, remember Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I told you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we go do that, then what is happening is the gospel is spreading throughout the world. And as people actually, their lives change as they follow Christ, this will lead to a period of peace on earth. The thousand years, they look at the number of thousand and they say, boy, that is an awfully symbolic looking number because it's 10 to the third power. Oh my goodness, that's just begs to be interpreted symbolically, right? And you remember the Psalms and the letter of Peter talk about with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The idea of a thousand years is sort of like 40 days or 40 years or seven. It's a number that's imbued with significance. And typically symbolically a thousand is the exact amount of time that God has appointed to fulfill his divine purpose. Remember three is the divine number. So 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is the number of creation, physical beings. This is the appointed time for God to accomplish his plan on the earth. Some would say, well, I think that's a literal thousand years. And others would say, I think it could be 2,462 years. In other words, it's symbolic of God accomplishing his plan. So post-millennialists say the gospel is bringing peace to the earth and after the appropriate time of the kingdom of God spreading on the earth, then Jesus comes back. So you are in the millennium now. You are in the time period where Christ is beginning to rule on the earth. What does it mean by rule? The gospel is spreading. And it's not the kingdom of Satan anymore. The kingdom of God is spreading. Do you remember Jesus when he was here talked about the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is like, these are all coming from the gospels. I want to connect this so it makes sense. The kingdom of God is like a little leaven that you put into some yeast. And next thing you know, it's in all the yeast. This is the idea that post-millennials will say, well, duh, Jesus said the gospel is going to, conquer the world, if you will. And so we're in the millennium, and when it's done, Jesus will come back. So that's what post-millennialism is. Jesus comes back after the rule of Christ. Third view, and there are only three. Amillennialism. Amillennial just means not a thousand years. And it's more symbolic. It says we currently live in a non-literal millennium, encompassing the whole time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. There's no literal reign. So for example, I guess I'll go ahead and tell you this now. So if you're a millennialist, what do you think about this whole idea of Satan was bound, Christ rules for a thousand years, and then Satan is released again? Amillennialists think Satan was bound at the cross. In other words, the resurrection of Christ, Satan was defeated at that point and his power was circumscribed. And so all the time the gospel is increasing, Satan is effectively bound, he's defeated. And so when you get to the end, 
Think tribulation, think battle of Armageddon. That's God saying you must be released and now it's time for final judgment. So millennials just says that, that reign of Christ is the reign of the gospel from the first coming to the second coming, okay? If you have questions, we can ask. We're gonna spend a couple of lessons talking about these concepts, but this is how, these are the views basically that Christians have had for 2,000 years about the millennium and they divide based on the question, when does Christ come back? Before, after, or wrong question, right? Premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? I don't even understand the question. Questions? Okay. Why would God release Satan after imprisoning him for a thousand years, or more or less? Right, great question. Okay, so the fact, I pointed out the idea that the text is very interesting, the text says he must be released. When it says must, that means it's according to a plan. Well, who's running this show? Ever since chapter one, who's running the show? Even when the, the Antichrist is out there persecuting Christians, who's actually judging the world? Christ, God is running this show. The whole point of Revelation is despite what you see in the kingdoms of the earth, God is sovereign over all of this. So if he must be released, that means that there's a part of God's plan that requires that for his plan to come to consummation. There are a number of ideas why must he be, but the key idea is God has said it to be so. Okay, is the length of a thousand years in Revelation the same as a thousand years today? Yes, okay, so first of all, uh, that question is 1,000 years then, same as 1,000 years today. In terms of the word, yes. And I'm, I'm assuming the questioner is making the astute observation that back in Genesis chapter one, as God creates the earth in seven days, and so you get this question of, well, wait a minute, does the Hebrew word for day there actually mean 24 hours? And people argue about that. People don't argue about it here. In other words, yes, a thousand years is a thousand years. There's no argument about the terminology. So if it's a literal thousand years, it means a literal thousand of our years in this universe, in this time frame. If it's symbolic of God's appointed time, then it could be any number of years. But I assume that's what you're referring to and that's a very good connection to make. But no, there's, no, there's nothing thought to be symbolic about the word year, just about the number 1,000. Good question. Okay, so we have beheaded martyrs coming back to life. Does that mean that there's no realization of death or heaven and hell until after the tribulation? Good question. So this goes back to the age old question of what happens after you die? And the scriptures are not entirely clear on that. Not because the scriptures don't understand it, not because God hasn't made up his mind, it's just that it doesn't give us a definitive answer. So one of two things happens, by and large. When you die, if you're a good guy, you go straight to heaven. And the other view is, when you die, good guy, bad guy, good girl, bad girl, you go to sleep. I mean, that's just the, the metaphor that's used. In other words, next thing you know, you wake up in judgment day, right? 
but a lot of time has passed by. It's as though you were asleep. Different parts of scripture will give you an indication of those two views, and you could argue either one. This passage would argue more for the you go to sleep after you die. So that's probably the best way to answer that is that passage and this scenario would be an argument that you would make to, see, you go to sleep afterwards and you are raised when Christ said it's time to be raised. Good question. Okay, so we got the three views, but before we go and uh, kind of explain those a little bit more and answer your questions, I just want to tell you, here's the history of these views throughout the life of the church, broadly speaking. So in the very earliest church, there are debated views, but generally speaking, a premillennial view um, held sway. In other words, in the early church, when they read the book of Revelation, they read it as chronologically linear. Tribulation, second coming of Christ, thousand year reign, Satan acts up, gets thrown into the lake of fire, then we have judgment. In other words, they read it in a premillennial way. Satan, Christ comes back before the thousand year reign. But by about the fourth century, so this is in the first couple of centuries, from about 400 AD to 1600 AD for a long time, because Augustine, in his reading of this, said, no, wait a minute, I think that it makes more sense that thousand years is symbolic because every other number like that is symbolic in the book of Revelation. And so he read it in an amillennial way, meaning there's a real millennium, but we're in it. And it spans all the way from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And the millennium, the reign of Christ on earth, well, that's us preaching the gospel so that people's hearts turn over from being reigned by ourselves or being ruled by Satan, now we owe our allegiance to Christ. So Augustine, very influential, espoused an amillennial approach, and it by and large dominated the church for 1,200 years. In the 1700s, there was a pietist movement. What does pietist mean? Pietism basically is think of it as uh, the way we use the word piety means that you act really in, in a good way. So think about the pietist movement being a holiness movement, meaning that your faith must express itself in the way you act. Think Ephesians 4.1, live your lives in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, Think that Jesus saved you to be holy and blameless before him. So the pietist movement with the Puritans really began to have an emphasis on, hey, your faith has to be more than just your faith. And you go into the Anglican church at that time, right, in England, and you go through the rituals and you go out and it makes no difference in your life. And so the pietist movement was, hey, wait a minute, if you have faith, it's gonna change the way you live. Well, the Puritans ushered in a period of post-millennial thought. And probably the most famous person who uh, saw this was Jonathan Edwards, great revivalist preacher in the 1700s. And so what they believed was, look, if we will do what Jesus told us and preach the gospel, people's hearts are gonna be changed, their lives are gonna be changed, and the culture and the world and governments are going to get better. And so they thought, 
the millennium was indeed spreading the gospel of Christ and that Jesus would come when peace had reached the earth. And so this is an era of many revivals, great reformations and great preachers. And so you can see that they saw post-millennialism as a, our job is to usher in the second coming of Christ. In the 1800s, you get what's called a dispensational movement. This class is not about dispensationalism, so I'm not gonna do it very much justice. I'm gonna just talk about dispensationalism in an eschatological way, meaning just what it affect, how it affects the end times. But in the 1800s, a guy named uh, John Nelson Darby uh, in England came up with a way of interpreting the scriptures. This is Christian, so I'm not talking you know, uh, heretical ways of looking at the scripture or anything like that. But he had a way of looking at the scriptures that had the idea was of there were seven dispensations in biblical history. Hence, it's called dispensationalism. But it had a couple of interesting little twists when you get to the end, when you get uh, to Revelation. And so the movement began among the Plymouth Brethren, which came to America in the 1800s, later 1800s, they brought a specific form of premillennialism known as dispensational premillennialism. This is the theology of the Left Behind series. This is the dominant view. That view didn't exist until the 1800s. And I'm just, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm just wanting you to know. That's not the premillennialism of the early church. It's a little more recent understanding, but it is the most popular way of looking at it, okay? So now let's go through some charts. So I think this will help make the millennium make more sense and make these views make a little bit more sense. And then there are all kinds of details to fill in, but I'll see what questions you have before I just start filling in the details. So there are three views. Premillennialism, Jesus comes back, then there's a thousand year reign. Postmillennialism. there's a thousand years of the gospel sort of conquering the earth, if you wanna think about it that way, and then Jesus comes back after. And there's amillennialism, which is like, no, no, the, the thousand years is totally symbolic, and it's the whole age between the first and second coming of Christ. Two flavors of premillennialism. So there are three views, but there's what's called historic premillennialism. This is what the early, early, early church read. And if you read the book of Revelation in a chronologically linear way, this is what it looks like. So you have the cross of Christ, you have the church age, which we are in, this is us. We're smiling because the tribulation hasn't started yet. And then you will have, and by the way, how do the four views of the, of the tribulation fit with the, the millennial views? They mix and match, but Futurists and premillennialists are like married. I mean, basically, if you're a futurist, you're probably a premillennialist. If you're a premillennialist, you're a futurist. And so when you read it chronologically, literally, you've got the church age, then you have seven years, right, of tribulation, chapters four through 19. Then you have chapter 19, second coming of Christ, right? Then you have the thousand years of Christ reigning on earth with the Christians that were killed in that great tribulation, right? And then you have Satan, right, gets uh, loosed, so Satan is loosed. 
and Satan dies, so he's gone. And then you have judgment and you have eternity, new heaven and new earth. So this is what's called historic premillennialism. And so you have the resurrection of the dead happens here. Only those who were in the tribulation happen in the millennium. That's just the way the text read it, right? It says those who had been beheaded or those who had been killed for the testimony during the tribulation came alive, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then next week you'll see the judgment and the dead are raised and all kinds of things happen. That's historic premillennialism. That is the way the early church thought. And if you just read the book of Revelation and you say, one chapter happens after the next chapter, this is what you will come up with, historic premillennialism. But since the 1800s, dispensationalists have a couple of interesting twists on this. They are premillennialists. So you, you, we're gonna add some stuff, but you still have the cross, of course, this is a Christian view. You still have the church age, right? And this is still us here. We're still smiling because the tribulation hasn't happened. Dispensationalists are the ones that came up with a rapture of the church, that the church leaves before the tribulation. And that's not something you'll find in the early church, but the rapture is uh, unique to a dispensational understanding of this. Then you have the tribulation, seven years. Then you have the second coming of Christ. That's chapter 19, right? Armageddon, second coming of Christ. Then you have a literal thousand year reign. You have uh, the resurrection and final judgment and you go on into eternity. So it's really like historic premillennialism. It's just reading it in a chronologically linear way with a couple of exceptions. One you've noticed is we've got the rapture thrown in here. That's a new modern feature. But notice Israel is in this picture because historic premillennialism understood the scriptures as you have a covenant between God and the Jews, Israel. And Jesus fulfilled that covenant and made a new covenant. Whether you're Jew or Gentile or any, whatever you are, you can now be part of God's chosen people called the church, called Christians or the saints. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense because that's pretty much what the scriptures say. And it's called a replacement kind of theology. In other words, God finished the covenant with Israel and started a new covenant. Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood and this is for everyone, not just Jews. Anyone who places their trust in Christ can become a Christian, right? Okay, so that's historic premillennialism. Dispensationalists say not so fast because the covenant with Israel hasn't been completely fulfilled. In other words, when you go back to Abraham, it talks about the idea, basically, I'll, short, I'll just shorten this a little bit. When you look at the Old Testament, it says the Jews were promised a lot of things. They were promised that the Messiah would come, they would be a blessing to the whole world, and that they would, would be lifted up and brought back together and they would rule. In other words, they, you know, that's why they thought that the Messiah was gonna throw off the Roman uh, legions and that they were gonna have a kingdom again. Well, they don't have a kingdom and they haven't had a kingdom. 
Jesus fulfills it. The early church said, well, he fulfilled that. Everything that you've been promised. And the kingdom is, if you will trust in the Messiah, you now live eternally with him. And this is the kingdom that never ends, right? But dispensationalists say, no, God's actually gonna make that come true in a very literal way. So here's the twist. So if the church is gone, who are the Christians in the tribulation? Church is gone now. That's not historic, but the dispensational say all the Christians are gone. So who are these people that are getting raised up that got beheaded during the tribulation? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Because you remember, it talks about there are 144,000. It's early in the book. It says, in the tribulation, Jesus says, but wait a minute, hold, everything stops. And he says, go mark my people. And there were 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Oh, that's just too good. All right, so most ways of looking at it is, well, that's as symbolic as you get. Right, 12,000, 12 tribes, God's people, those are the Christians. But if you're dispensationally go, they're gone. The Christians all got raptured. And the fact that they use the 12 tribes means that what God is going to do during this tribulation is the Jews that are alive are going to believe in Jesus and become Christians. There's, I don't want you to misunderstand dispensationalism. They're not saying Jews are going to heaven by being Jews. They're saying that during the tribulation, they're going to come to Jesus Christ. They're gonna accept Jesus as the Messiah. So you got a bunch of Jews, Israel, who become Christians during the great tribulation. And the Antichrist kills them and oppresses them and the church is you know, off with Christ, right? Because they've been raptured. So who comes to life during the millennium? Jews who have come to Christ. Now God finally fulfills the covenant of Abraham and Israel in the form of Jewish people who have become believers, they rule with Christ for a thousand years. Where's everybody else waiting? This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. This is what uh, the dispensational view, and I'm not doing it, tremendous justice, but fundamentally, they're saying that thousand year reign, why do you even have a thousand year reign? We gotta go back and finish out what God promised to Abraham. And now the Jews who became Christians in the tribulation, just they will reign. Where are they gonna reign from? Jerusalem. We're gonna have a new temple? Yes, we are. And so in other words, we're gonna have a little Old Testament action going in the sense that we're gonna finish out this promise to Abraham. Then Satan gets released and Jesus destroys him. I mean, just like the text says, and then everybody gets raised for final judgment. Okay, does that make sense? It's still premillennialism. It's still just reading things. It just throws Israel into the mix and says God still has to finish up what he's doing. Two versions of dispensationalism, there's classic dispensationalism, there's progressive dispensationalism, and I don't wanna get into that unless you have questions, or maybe we'll do it on the podcast. But bottom line, dispensational premillennialism says Israel has a place, a role and a place to play. That explains something very interesting. Given that this is the most popular view, historic premillennialists 
don't have any heartburn against Jewish people, but they're like, you need to become a Christian just like anybody else. I mean, none of us have any hope without being a Christian. Dispensational, though, says, wait a minute. The Jewish people are still special to God. Now, they're not going to heaven without accepting Christ. They, they don't believe that. But they're saying, but wait a minute. The Jewish people are still special. And have you noticed that, that uh, Christianity in the West, which is largely dispensational, has a great political fondness for Israel? This is why. I mean, there may be other reasons, but this is fundamentally why. Think about in, uh, we're just doing a little bit of history. Early 1900s, Balfour, foreign minister, Arthur Balfour, he was the foreign minister of England uh, in World War I, and that's when the Jews were saying, we need a homeland, because you know they'd been scattered. They, they didn't have the land of Israel. And Balfour said, it's the policy of the British government that we need a homeland for the Jews. Why in the world would he say something like that? Well. Nobody in the church before has ever said anything like that. I mean, it's like, well, we appreciate you guys and we'd love for you to have a home, but it's not that big a deal because by that time, this was a dominant way of looking at the scriptures. And so it's like, wait a minute, God's not done with the Jews. They need to become Christians, but they're still special to God. And then you get World War II and then you get people going to Israel. And even today, Christian leaders who hold to a dispensational premillennial view still see Israel in a very favorable light because God's not finished with the Jews yet. Does that make sense? That wasn't real clean, but you get the general idea. That's part of, uh, I think that's a large part of the reason why you see so much support in the West for Israel because there is this belief in this view that God's not through with Israel yet. They still have a role to play. Question. So what is the difference between the 144,000 Jews who become Christians during the tribulation and current Messianic Jews? Good question. Here, here's probably the best way I can think of to answer it. The term Messianic Jew and Christian are the same thing. And I know we use, uh, well, Terry, then why do we use two different words? That's a very good question. Uh, but fundamentally, what a Messianic Jew is, I was raised Jewish, whether religiously or, or culturally or whatever, and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And remember, Messiah and Christ are the same word. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, same word. So they basically believe what do you believe? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So a Messianic Jew is a Christian, but who had a Jewish background. And so when you see Messianic Jewish congregations, they're Christian congregations. You would be welcome there. It's we worship Jesus Christ as the son of the living God, died for, they believe what you believe. But they still inculcate some of the Jewish cultural elements that they grew up with. Does that make sense? They don't think they're saved by following the law of Moses. They are Christians. But we use that name in our culture to say, well, these people were culturally, religiously, or ethnically Jewish. They are Jewish in some way, and they have believed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. For you and me, we're called Messianic Gentiles, right? Like, we're not Jewish, but we also believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So that's probably the easiest way to explain it. They, they are Christians. Good question. Okay. 
So does the current trajectory of our culture testify against the amillennial view? Uh, that's a good question. The current trajectory of our culture very much testifies against the post-millennial view, meaning things are gonna get better, 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 better. There's gonna be peace, peace, peace on earth as the gospel goes, and then Jesus is gonna come back. Everybody looks around and goes, hmm, you know, either we're not doing a good job, probably the case, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing, or maybe post-millennialism isn't the right way to understand it. Very few post-millennialists around anymore. Remember when they came is in the 1700s with the revivals and think, think John Wesley reviving the Anglican church. Think, you know, just think about Jonathan Edwards and the great revivals of Christianity, just powerful preaching of the word and people becoming Christian and their lives changing. Then that's when the post-millennial view became the most uh, prominent, not very prominent anymore. Amillennial is actually gaining in prominence. And the reason is because amillennial doesn't require that the world is getting better. It just says the millennium is when the gospel, the kingdom of God is in the world and that's now. And so Satan is bound at the cross. Here we are for a quote, symbolic thousand years. It's been 2,000 so far. Who knows what it'll be? It'll be whatever God's appointed time is. And then Satan will be released, and you call that the tribulation, right? And then he will be destroyed. You call that Armageddon. And then uh, the end goes on. So amillennialist is actually gaining because of the idea that maybe we should take this a little more symbolically. So the two predominant views today are dispensational premillennialism, because we do like the rapture, and amillennialism, which says, hey, this whole thing seems a little more symbolic. Not untrue, just true in a, in a not so linear a way, but true, 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 true. So that's a good question. Postmillennialism is definitely on the decline. So is the rapture only in the dispensational premillennialist view? That is correct. Historic, when I say this, what I mean is, I probably shouldn't even use the word historic premillennialism anymore because anybody that's premillennial now thinks dispensationally about it. I just wanted you to know that because you're going to hear it say that, well, premillennialism is how the early church understood it. It's got to be the right way. There's truth in that. The earliest church, they argued about it. It wasn't unanimous, but largely they read it chronologically, but they didn't have a rapture and they didn't have the Jews reigning in the thousand years. So that's, that's historical premillennialism. What you have now is with a few additions to it. Uh, so yes, today dispensational premillennialism is, when you say premillennialism, that's probably what you mean in America today. So do the dead in Christ experience the millennial reign? Well, okay, so in this view, no. And I mean, it's just as cut and dried. It's like the text says the people that were beheaded in the tribulation for their testimony came to life and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. And then everybody's gonna be raised later. But you got a rapture. So you're, Christians are already raised and in heaven, but they're not ruling with Christ. Two different groups of people that the ruling in the thousand years are those saints from the tribulation period. And that's just following the text in a very literal way. 
okay? So post-millennialism, won't spend much time, I can tell you guys, don't believe it. Um, but it fundamentally, post-millennial basically says that you've got the church age, that's us, but we're sad. And then you have the tribulation and the millennium kind of all happening together. In other words, Satan is fighting, but the gospel is fighting back and we're spreading the gospel and there's this big spiritual battle in the world and that's what we're doing right now. And when the time is right, Jesus comes back, the second coming of Christ after this time period of the gospel spreading. It's just that simple. Does that make sense? But for that to be true would mean that the gospel's winning in the world. And admittedly, it does not appear that way, at least when you look at the news. And so that's why people think, well, maybe this isn't the right way to think about it. Okay? Amillennialism. Amillennialism says it's sort of like making a smoothie. You just throw everything in there and hit the button right? Amillennialism says everything's happening whenever you want it to be happening, right? And I mean that literally in this sense is that amillennialism says it's all symbolic, but it's teaching you a real truth. And the truth is there's going to be a time of tribulation. And that time of tribulation is going to be all the way from when Christ was raised until the second coming of Christ when he defeats it. It's happening now, it'll happen in the future, it's happened in the past, and if you look at it, you go, well, yeah, I mean, you've had persecution of Christians today and in the past and probably in the future, so tribulation's going on from the whole time. But the reign of Christ is also going on the whole time because you know what? Satan got restrained. He got bound at the cross. I'll tell you why. Here's here's the determining Uh, evidence for this. There's a lot of evidence, but I'll give you the one that's most compelling. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus told, uh, he was healing people and he cast out a demon. This is in Jesus' ministry, Matthew 12. He, he, He cast out a demon. And so the Jewish leaders come and they said, you know what? We don't think you're from God. We think you're casting out demons by Satan's power. Well, that was rude. And so what did Jesus say? Jesus said, that makes no sense at all, guys. Think about it. If you were gonna cast out Satan's demons, why in the world would Satan do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. But here's what you guys need to be thinking about. Suppose if I can cast out Satan's demons, that must mean I have bound Satan. I'm strong enough to tie him up. And he tells this little parable. He says, if someone wants to rob a strong man's house, you can't just go in and rob it. You have to tie up the strong man first. And then you rob his house. What's Jesus saying? I'm robbing Satan's house. I'm kicking his demons out of people. What does that tell you? Where do you think Satan is? I'm more powerful and I have bound Satan. Satan operates at my, okay, so what happens? As Jesus is raised from the dead and Satan is defeated, he basically said, you're bound. Now, the gospel rules, not you. You can't hold on to these people. They're mine. All they have to do is trust in me. You're saved by God's grace through faith. And Satan says, no, 
They're doing bad things, and Jesus says, doesn't matter. They're mine, not yours. You can't hold on to them anymore. Their record of sin is no longer held against them because I took it. Is this making sense? So you read that and you go, sure looks to me like Satan was bound by Christ's resurrection. So we are in the millennium, meaning that this is the rule of Christ on earth. Anyone can come to Christ and Satan cannot hold them back. If you turn your heart to Jesus Christ and you say, I surrender to you, Jesus said, I'll pay your mortgage on your soul. I'll pay the debt that you owe. I'll wash away all your sins. Satan no longer has the power to hold you. And so we are in the millennium and then Christ will come at the second coming, okay? That's basically amillennialism. It says it's all happening at the same time. And it's all happened many times. There have been persecutions of Christians all through the time. There's been the gospel saving people all through this time. So does that make sense? It doesn't read Revelation in a chronologically literal way. It reads it in a very symbolic way. Okay, question. Oh, lots of questions. If, if Satan is bound, is he no longer a lion crouching at the door? If Satan is bound, should we still be praying for protection from the evil one? If Satan is bound, what's causing the tribulation? Great questions. So that all hinges on the question, what does it mean for Satan to be bound? And so the scripture uses metaphors for this. So Satan is unbound here, when you see the whole world turn against God and you see the great ending, right? Maybe you're, you can be uh, amillennial and be a futurist and say, I, I think this happens over and over, but I also think there's gonna be a seven-year time and a real person who's gonna be the Antichrist, fine. But the idea is that Satan, what does it mean for Satan to be bound in this time period? If you think of Satan to be bound as he can't do anything, then you would say, I don't know about that. It does seem like there's evil in the world. Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Think about Satan being bound. Well, let me give you a great example. So we have a, my wife has a dog and our dog is rowdy, right? And so sometimes I have to take care of the dog uh, when she's gone and, and the dog and I, you know, we have a relationship. And so... When I go out to work in the yard, I can't take the dog with me because the dog will take off, right? It's not a well-trained dog. And so this dog will take off. So I have two choices. I can put the dog in the crate and lock her up, and then I go out and work in the yard for a few hours. Well, that's not kind. And so I want a better way to bind this dog. So what do I do? Ah, so I went down to PetSmart, and they got this little screw that goes into the ground, and you just attach a little leash to it, and she is circumscribed in how far she can go. Haven't found anything to keep her from barking, but at least I know she's not running away. And so, you could say Satan is bound in that he's put in prison and he can't act at all. That doesn't seem to be the case. But I want you to think about Satan being bound. He's been put on a rope. And he's only allowed to do what he's permitted to do. Does that make sense? It's like my dog. It's like you are free in a 20-foot radius. You know, and that's pretty much what you got. And so my dog is chained up. 
is put on a leash, if these are metaphors for it, that's probably a little better way of thinking about Satan being bound. Satan is not, cannot do whatever Satan wants to do. But Satan is active in this world and the demons are indeed active in this world and Satan is always trying to deceive the nation. So really good question. It kind of comes down to what do you mean by Satan being bound? Now, to be fair, I'm gonna go back to the dispensational view. When is Satan bound here? If you read it in a chronologically literal, Satan is bound at the beginning of the thousand years. Where are we? Oh, all the way back here. We're not smiling anymore. We're frowning because Satan is not bound. So that is a fundamental disagreement as to when does Satan get bound. If you think the millennium starts in the future, he's not bound at all right now. He can do whatever he wants to. And that's a, one of the reasons people do see that premillennialism makes sense to them. If you're amillennial, however, you would say, no, he's bound here. And actually, things could be much worse if he weren't restrained. And in fact, in the future, when he is released, what happens? The whole world follows him and we have a mega battle. So there, there is a difference in opinion on those two views around the binding of Satan. Very good question. It's just a disagreement. I mean, you, you have to take one or the other. And it might sway you as to which view that you have. Question. So are you calling the dog Satan? <laughs> I, I would never go that far. Antichrist, maybe. False prophet, possibly. But no, no, not Satan at all. But that's a good way to think. If you're an amillennialist, that's how you think about Satan being bound. If you say, that isn't convincing to me, Terry, I'm gonna say a dispensational premillennialist and I don't think he's bound at all yet. Fair enough. There are different opinions based on how you're understanding this. Does that make sense? I mean, Christians don't always agree. And these are both Christian points of view. These are not heretical points of view. Mm -hmm. Okay, seriously. So did Satan have free reign before Christ in this view? Good question. Yes, Satan would have had freer reign before the time of Christ. But if you look at the book of Job, for example, and then we're just getting clues here, right? But the clues you get from the book of Job is Satan comes up, said, I've been going to and fro amongst the earth. And uh, God says, would you see Job? He's a faithful man. And Satan says, not really. If you let me have him for a little bit, he won't be. What does that tell you? Satan can't do anything he wants. And, and God said, okay, go ahead, I think you're wrong. And I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna show Christians for the next 4,000 years. And so God permits that to happen. So there's a sense when you say Satan is unbound, Satan still isn't God. Satan still is under God's sovereignty. But yes, this view would hold that people were more barbaric and the world, think, think Genesis 6, guys. I mean, you get an ugly little world right before the uh, flood and Noah. You just get every thought of humanity was evil all the time. That's Genesis 6. And the world had become so evil, it was abhorrent to God. Okay, that's Satan doing his worst. So that would be the view of, of this point of view. Very good question. Okay? So we'll pick up some of these additional questions because next time I want to do a bit of a recap of this, but I want to move on and say, well, then what's the judgment all about? Who's getting judged? And so next time we'll talk about what's called 
the last part of chapter 20, chapter 20 is not very big, but you can argue a lot. And so you got 10 verses about the millennium and then you have a few more verses about what's called the great white throne judgment. Two big questions there. Who in the world is getting judged in this judgment? And secondly, why are people being judged by what they have done? Interesting questions, but time doesn't permit us to answer tonight. In the meantime, come by my house, dog will be bound up in the front yard. (laughs) 